Okay, let's start with prayer. Thank you, Lord, that we can gather and search the scriptures together and learn the truth. And may we have wisdom and understanding as we hear your word and interact with one another as we search out the truth and the salvation you've provided. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. So last week, we got talking about blessing and cursing. And one of the topics was, um, how do you know somebody's blessed or cursed? Can you go by symptoms? Or do you go by the promises of God in the Bible? And so we went through, uh, let me see how many verses we went through. Someone refresh my mind. I think we covered that, but let's review. Cursed is the man who trusts in man. Now that's, of course, generic meaning person. Can you hear me? How about that? Oh, yeah. Much better. That's better? Okay. Let me check this now. Yeah, that's okay. All right, good. <clears throat> Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. And then there's a simile. It's like a shrub in the desert shall not see any good come and dwell in parched places. That's not good. And then we covered, I believe, Galatians 3.10, let me quickly read that. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to, and, and to do them. We talked about that. Is that correct? Okay. That is, by the way, one of the best verses to prove uh, that you can't be saved by law works, right? Because if you abided by everything and could follow it without Christ, you'd be blessed. But Paul says everybody who tries to do that is cursed. So what do we know? It, it can't be done. Let's go forward here. Next slide. In contrast, blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord. That, by the way, is Yahweh, whose trust is the Lord. He's like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream, does not fear when the heat comes, for its leaves remain green, and is not anxious in the year of drought, does not cease to bear fruit. And then we reference Galatians 3, 8 and 9. Uh, I'll quickly read that. I don't want to reiterate too much so we can get, go forward here. My throat clear. Okay, Galatians 3, 8 and 9. And a scripture foreseeing God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. And so Paul said, if you trust in law works, your human ability, how good you are, how virtuous you are compared to everybody else, anything other than what God does for you, you'll end up cursed. Now, does anybody want to comment? Maybe this is new to you. You were here, or you don't think we covered it well enough. Otherwise, I'll go on. Okay, let's keep going. 
Jeremiah 17, 9 and 10. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Now, I think we mentioned that's a rhetorical question. A rhetorical question has an implied answer. What is the implied answer? No one. Except for the Lord. God gives the answer. I, the Lord, search the heart. So who is it that knows the heart and knows things that we can't even understand ourselves? God, right? Now, I don't know how much we covered this, but if you want to jot down, Acts 1.24 and Acts 15.8 use a phrase in the Greek uh, in reference to God called heart knower. It's like our hyphenated word, heart knower. Who's the heart knower? God. Who doesn't know the heart? Man. So the reason this is important is that so much of evangelicalism and religion in general thinks that the only way you'll ever get better is to get somebody to process your past, figure out what's going on in your conscience. And there's all these theories, all of which require knowledge that God says you'll never get. Okay? And this process has led to untold heartache, false accusations, lies, destroyed families, destroyed lives. And sometimes it gets on the national news, the local news. And uh, Carly, there's someone, uh, Paul over here. And if you remember, during the 80s, there was a whole thing that swept through Wisconsin and elsewhere called satanic ritual abuse. And if you don't remember that era of history or you never heard about that, you're really blessed. You don't really want to otherwise. But this just shows how bad it is when people try to come up with things that are horrible and what's causing all the problem. And literally, there were people who were accusing parents, relatives of things that never happened. And a pastor I knew brought in to this meeting we started uh, to talk about issues, a guy who was literally thrown into jail for satanic ritually, ritual abuse, and none of it ever happened. And somebody said, well, you, if you just plead uh, guilty, it'll be better for you. Well, then he got thrown into jail, and it was just horrible and endless, endless, endless. Well, here's why I'm warning you, because a lot of people are young enough to not know what happened in the 80s on this thing. The civil authorities started asking questions because they were claiming that babies were being born and then killed to be sacrificed to Satan in the 80s. And the sheriffs and different people were saying, wait a second, can that many people be doing all these things and nobody ever heard about it and nobody ever knew about it? 
And this is just horrible. How could it be? Turned out it was fake. It just didn't happen. And if it did, maybe it just really wasn't the truth. In the meantime, lives are destroyed. Families are destroyed. People were harmed. Horrible things happened. And then they had this recovered memories thing going on. The terrible things happened, and you can't remember what they were, so they go to the therapist and use hypnosis, and people start remembering things, but they never happened. What's that? That happened in Jordan? Well, in one case, and they finally stopped, it happened down in Florida. And a pastor was accused of horrible things, but in this case, the recovered memories included dates, places, times, what happened. And he filed, he, he basically lost his whole life, his family and everything, but they were able to prove that the allegations were false. He filed suit, they proved him false, he was vindicated, but and in the meantime, his life is ruined. But the good thing was, oh, well, maybe we shouldn't do this recovered memories because you can't count on it. It may be totally wrong. And so people trying to process the past are destroying other people. And it's not even true. It's not even real. Some cases, maybe it is. Whatever is really true God has a plan. It's called forgiveness of sins. But you don't have to gain secret information about the past to be right with God. Eric and then, or Paul. Paul was next in Eric. Paul. About that one phrase, who can understand it? Uh, who can assimilate it with any sense of mastery of the subject matter? Who can experience it? That, isn't that like the uh, Eastern mysticism that's going, coming into the church? Well, that's a good point. Let me comment on that, and then we'll go back and get it here to Eric. Here's what we're trying to tell people. We have to have our faith, our lives, and our hopes grounded in what is true objectively. Okay? Feelings, experiences, recovered memories, dreams. How many of you know that if all your dreams were actual reality, that'd be really bad. <laughs> if mine were reality, I couldn't even get a golf ball on a tee and it would always fall off. <laughs> Ever had that? Fall off. Come on, hit the ball. Falls off. I woke up, oh, I was dreaming. But see, some people think, oh, that's, that's the key, that's what you need. And then they go into the realm of subjectivity Emotions, spirits, recovered memories, processes, all of this, and the outcome has always been bad. Now, I don't know who besides me heard about all this stuff in the 80s, but do you ever hear about satanic ritual abuse all across Wisconsin now? Why not? It was like the plague, but it never happened. Here's another thing. If Christians buy into these things and put their stock in it, and it all turns out to be false, what good did we do the gospel? 
It's all oh, spectacular, it's great, it's all, no, or it's horrible, whatever it is. Well, it never happened. And it all went away. If it really happened, somebody would find evidence and objectivity. Here's one thing I want to say, Eric. This is what I tell everyone. Objective reality is your friend. The realm of the spirits is not where you want to go. It's the realm of deception, yes. You know, in a lot of the Puritans' writings, they believe that the key of, to sanctification is examining yourself. And I remember reading this time and time again, and it seems so pious. But what's very interesting is what Bob is sharing with us from Jeremiah 17 shows that we can deceive ourselves and not even examine our own heart properly. In fact, when Bob comes to 1 Corinthians 4, Bob, excuse me, Paul, the apostle, talks about that. Um, if you turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 4, he's talking about them examining him. And he says in verse 3, he says, But to me it's a very small thing that I may be examined by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even examine myself. Well, if you Good go on. Good point. Good reading. Yeah, and the reason he doesn't is because he knows that God alone is the heart knower. Wow. So the key to sanctification isn't going inside of yourself trying to say, what's wrong with me? The key, as Bob has been laying out for now 30 years, is believing the promises of God. Wow. We're to look outside of ourselves to what Christ has done, his promises, rather than to try to micromanage all the thoughts we think we may or may not have because we can end up being our own false lawgiver. That is a great reading. If only you drink coffee, you definitely would get through. You get a sip of water. Barb. Eric, uh, keep the mic. Um, so how do you reconcile 2 Corinthians 13, 5, where it says examine yourselves to see if you're in the faith? Very good. good. It's, good I've question. dealt with that. Very good. It's, that's an objective standard because they're to examine themselves to find if they're in the faith, which is objectively by faith in Christ. And the point of that examination, it's objective, it's not subjective. He's not asking them to examine their heart for sin. It's objective to say, hey, did you trust in Christ? And if you did, how did you hear it? It was me, the apostle, therefore I'm your apostle. So he's proving his apostolic authority and that he's the apostle. Why? Because that's how they heard the gospel. So that's objective, and we can objectively know whether we've trusted Christ or not. In other words, we can say, yes, I, I trust in him. And that's wow. why, remember in 1 John 5.13, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have everlasting life. That's objective. You can know whether you've trusted in Christ. Absolutely. So let's just drive this point home. Sorry, guys. Hold on. Let's just, let's just camp like out here for a voice, second because this is such a good point. Go this is, is such a good point. It needs to be meditated on a little bit here. Now, when we have the Lord's Supper on Sunday mornings every once a month, traditionally the churches I grew up with is examine your own heart, examine yourself, examine yourself, examine yourself. With little more than that, that's it. And I think we need to really contemplate on this. What are we supposed to be doing here? on the Lord's Supper. Are we supposed to be examining our heart? Or are we supposed to be praising the Lord for what he's done for us? Or is it both and? Great question. Jessica, I'll let you talk and then I got an answer too, I hope. I'll ask that. Yeah, some switch. Um, 
and you guys can correct me on this, but wasn't the issue in First Corinthians that the church was actually doing communion wrong? And Paul was telling that church to examine themselves at communion because they had those who were going away who had feasted and were drunk and those who were being left out. I don't believe that's a command for individual believers to examine themselves before taking communion. That church was to examine how they were doing communion right. and who was included and who was left out. Right. They were excluding people based on social status, wealth, uh, and so on. And am I on yet? Yeah, I, I turned it down. Uh, and yeah, that's a good point. If we, <laughs> this is really an interesting question. The old way of looking at it was, are you worthy to take communion? Have you been good enough? And the irony is, the only ones who won't take it under those standards are the people who are honest and say, I don't think I'm worthy for this. I don't think I've done well enough. And, and so it's like you're trying to scare people away from the means of grace and exclude them. And the issue isn't whether you think you're good enough. It's how you treat the body of Christ and how anybody could ever go to the Lord's table. It's only because of what Christ did for us. Is that right? At this particular church, they're saying skip the communion. If, if there's somebody that maybe you haven't have something wrong with or something and you haven't repented over something or haven't apologized, then just skip the communion is what these people were saying at okay. this church I was going to. Eric, you want to talk to that? Yeah, you know, um, if everyone looked at 1 Corinthians 1, 27, or we'll start in maybe verse 28, but Bob is exactly right in what Jessica said as well. They, the issue is excluding other Christians from table fellowship. And so in Corinth, they had an atrium and they had a triclinium. And so the rich Christians are all in the triclinium reclining, having dinner. All of the poor Christians are excluded and they're not even then therefore having the Lord's Supper and so what Paul is upset about is they had two different suppers, and therefore it was no longer the Lord's Supper. It ended up being the rich man's supper. And so the examining is objective. Hey, if you're treating a brother or sister that way, you're not right with the Lord. It wasn't a subjective looking at your heart, but objectively, are you excluding other Christians? So again, this isn't a call to examine a heart. It's just a call to objectively say, are you excluding other Christians? Then you're not right. And the, the proof of that is, notice in verse 28, he says, but a man must examine himself this is 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-eight, And in so doing, he is to eat and drink the bread of the Lord. And he says, for he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. Well, what's the body? The body of Christ is every believer. And then he says, for this reason, many of you are sick. And then I'm, I'm going down to where he says, um, he actually says, wait for one another. Oh, yeah. So here, notice 33. Does everyone see the so then? Here's the inference Paul wants to drive at. How do you examine yourself and how do you do the Lord's Supper properly? Here's what it's all about. He says, so then, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. So how that's you objective. one another? Well, exactly. It's one another. So it's objective, not subjectively looking at our heart. I know. And when I, when I first got Gordon Fee's commentary on 1 Corinthians, I think he published in 86, I found out that almost every bad thing I'd believed had been based on 
a misuse of First Corinthians because we didn't understand context, irony, and everything. The meaning, once we saw the meaning, uh, we're not claiming I'm worthy because I examine myself and I don't have any sin in my life. That's not the point. Yes, go uh, go ahead. And then some people just came in. We're, we're talking about only God knows the heart. And so then uh, some people are thinking we can figure that out if we just do introspection, memory regression, all these things that are out there. But the real answer is trust God. He's the only one who knows the heart. And what he knows is that we're, we're sinners, and he's provided the only remedy, which is the blood of Christ. Yes. When uh, Eric read 1 Corinthians 4.3, it, it ended the last few words where I do not even examine myself. But the next verse, Paul says, for I am conscious of nothing against myself, and um, yet I am not by this acquitted, but the one who examines is the Lord. Right. And some people are, are uh, crippled by fear, uh, anxiety about what they've done wrong. Uh, is there any hope? And I'll tell you this, everybody needs hope and confidence. And it needs to be in the Lord, not in ourselves. And so if you go by getting the scripture wrong, the bold, the brassy, the people, I never did anything wrong. I can do it. I can do it. Well, then that's fine. But then others are thinking, I'm a horrible Christian. I'll never be able to, God, God will never, I'll never be good enough. I might as well give up and leave. And I wrote an article about this on pietism. And the fact is, there's another passage in 1 Corinthians where it says, don't go on passing judgment before the time. It's hard not to do that. But that's what he said. Now, it doesn't mean you can't know that your sins are forgiven by trusting in Christ and the blood atonement and the promises of God. But what we like to judge is who's more important in the body of Christ. And so, well, I'm of Paulus. No, I'm of Paul. I'm of Christ. I'm really the great Christian. And we, it's just a human nature. We try to do that. Again, uh, if history goes on long enough and I live long enough and the rapture doesn't happen, I'm going to preach on First Corinthians 4. Right now we're in chapter 1. But it's so important. Who knows the heart? God. Amongst Christians, can we really know who's the better Christian and who's the worst Christian? No. And if we think it's, it's impossible, I, I, I can't do it, or we think, I know God needs me, but they don't, he doesn't need these other Christians. We don't know. We don't know. That's not our job. It's not our job to know who's the better Christian. It's our job to trust Christ, believe his promises, and it's by his grace that we have forgiveness of sins and grace and gifts, and by love serve one another, and we'll get to it in 1 Corinthians 11. We can't even be sure which gift is more important because they wanted to do that. They said, uh, well, I'm a prophet, I'm an apostle, whatever it was. The point is 
The body is put together by God. We all need one another. And that's what's the, is at issue. So what we're trying to say is don't subscribe, uh, Norm wants the, the mic, don't subscribe to any doctrine or healing process or psychological theory that requires someone to know the human heart, either their own or somebody else's. Because once you start down that road, you're going somewhere where you're gonna get lost and you won't find your way out. And we're gonna to try to uh, prove that from Jeremiah, yes. So how do we tie in the idea of uh, we know them by their fruits? We can look at people and see if they're bearing fruit or not. That somewhat subjective way of looking at it? I don't think it is. Uh, you know, when we went through Galatians, it talked about the fruits of the flesh and the fruit of the spirit. And it, back here. <laughs> um, if you just look at the list, love, joy, peace, long-suffering, and so on, fruits of the spirit. What are the fruits of the flesh? Wrath. Somebody could look them up. I'd go by memory. In a general sense, it's pretty obvious that if you won't listen to the gospel, you think the Bible's wrong, your life is full of anger, hatred, despising every other Christian. In a general sense, that's objective. But if you take it subjectively and say, oh, I got angry when I was driving in traffic, I'm not a Christian. Well, then that's not the point. And Eric, if you want to comment on that, uh, I got a backlighting going on here. Oh, there, Tom. I'll just uh, follow on what Brian was saying here in First Corinthians four four. But the one who judges me is the Lord. We know the very standard that the Lord judges by, which has already been established. And I think sometimes we're guilty of thinking, well, we don't know what the standard's going to be in the future, and it's just kind of very vague. But it is clear-cut because God has spoken. Um, I think that what happens is in this realm of determining what is good and what is evil, you know, we hear that what is good is called evil, what is evil is called good. And here, what we're talking about this morning, uh, we tend to take it too far and call what is cursed blessed and what is blessed cursed. And we see a lot of that in society today, that there's a mix in what is what. Uh, what is black, what is white, or what is truth, you know, that you can't right. know. It's just, but we do know because it has been spoken. It is written. Right. It, the objective word of God describes what is good and evil. That's right. Furthermore, I think what confused people, especially Americans, is we assume America is Christian and has a covenant with God and the millennium is coming to America. That's a different topic. But this is what is true for all Christians in all ages, in all places, because it's for people who believe in Christ to know the truth. And so if somebody comes along and says, Oh, this is good. It's good. We need to have all of these things. No, God tells us what's good and evil. And frankly, didn't, uh, where did Paul say that we can't even deal with the issues in the church? We're going to judge the outsiders? I can't remember where that is. 
Well, I got to keep teaching through First Corinthians, don't I? That's in First Corinthians. You're, you're right. But the point is, the only thing that can be known is objectively revealed through special revelation or objectively understood in general revelation. And people want to confuse that. Now, at one point, with neo-Orthodox, you had, well, we can build ships and airplanes and buildings, and we can do all of that. But when it comes to faith, nobody can know anything. Whatever God said is equivocation. We can't know what it is. So we just take a leap of faith for religion and use objectivity in general revelation. That was called neo-orthodoxy, and Eric and I ran into that more than once. But as a matter of fact, the objective truth that's revealed by God is verifiable in history. Was there a Moses? Um, is the Old Testament reliable? Is the New Testament reliable? Was there actually a body in the tomb? Well, everybody agreed there wasn't. And I was just talking to someone the other day who doesn't believe in Christianity, and I was saying, no, we're not just saying you have to believe this because it's what it is. The Qumran cave, remember when they found those scrolls? The liberals are saying, the Bible's a myth. None of this ever really happened. Uh, Isaiah 53, all these prophecies, it was made up by people later. What was the Passover plot where they said the Christians contrived the story to fit what's there? Qumran destroyed that whole theory because there are sections of the scrolls that predated Christ that had prophecies of a suffering Messiah, and we know it's true. And it wasn't made up. It's really true. If it wasn't for objective evidence or the faith, it's not good for anybody. I've seen Christians who believed in all the subjective stuff, and at the end, toward the end of life, it, it's really bad for them because they're full of fear. And they don't, anybody's subjected it to, ultimately to, is this really true? Is there really a resurrection for those who trust in Christ unto righteousness? Is the promise of God true? You don't want to go into the subjective realm because it won't do you well. But what if you believe the promises of God? I'll never forget last Sunday when our dear friend Ed Levine came in here on a walker and I couldn't believe it. He was so full of joy and I didn't think I'd ever see him again with that kind of just joy. He beamed. And some of, some of us were here. It was just a great joy. And then now we learn he went to be with the Lord in his sleep. Well, that joy didn't come from just feeling good because he wanted to be with the family of God and he believed the gospel. Amen. And so it would be horrible if you come to church and what people teach you is go by your feelings, go into the realm of the spirits, examine your own heart and figure out what all the inner workings of it look like, retrograde into dream interpretation, processing the past, curses from previous generations, 
what the demons are doing, and so on and so on and so forth. And so many people are in that realm. And I thank God for people like our dear brother Ed Levine who believed. It doesn't mean he never had any doubts, but he did believe. One time I talked to him and he said, how do I know I, I, I have doubts? And so I just pointed him to the objective and I, uh, uh, it's amazing. And by the way, thank you to everyone who just took action, found out his needs, looked after Ed, made sure he was taken care of. People, God bless whoever and everyone. God bless you. Um, that's what you're bringing to about what, what is it? It's the saints who look at everyone as important. And everybody wants to know a celebrity or, um, oh, I was, uh, I went to, it doesn't matter, Billy Graham or Billy Sunday or whatever your hero is, it's only Christ. Does that make sense? And so I do want to say a thank you to everyone who just immediately took action to make sure everything's okay for Ed. And that's what God will sort out in the end the rewards and for the body of Christ and so on. But don't judge before the time. Just be thankful that God takes care of us. If God didn't take care of me, I know I wouldn't be here. Well, let's make a little progress. But I, let, me, let me just give the bottom line. What God has said, what we know is true in objective reality are our friends. The world of the memories and dreams and spirits and cause and effect based on previous generations. It's all mushy, mushy, mushy. Yeah, it's bad. Yeah, I, I, if I go forward, we'll see that here. Look at this. This is why. Um, and then I'm going forward to Jeremiah 17, 14. Now, Jeremiah wasn't ever treated well in his lifetime. I got to show you that. If you want to be the true spokesman, for, spokesperson for God, don't expect everybody's going to love you. Okay. Heal me, O Lord, and I shall be healed. Save me, and I shall be saved, for you are my praise. Now, Jeremiah put his trust in God, in Yahweh, who had called him and sent him with a message nobody liked. But Jeremiah was a true prophet from God. He spoke from God. His prophecies came true. They didn't want to listen to him. And I put down some passages here, but basically, 1 Corinthians 15, 22, in Adam, all die. In Christ, all are made alive. Bottom line, are you in Adam? What do you got to do to be in Adam? Do you have to join a religion? No. Do you have to do a lot of works? No. You become in Adam by natural generation. How can you ever be in Christ? You need to be born again. So you're in Adam by natural generation. You're in Christ by supernatural regeneration. Believe the promises of God. Believe in Jesus Christ. 
trust him and him alone. God knowing the heart is only good news if you trust in the forgiveness of sins. For anybody else that's honest, it's very bad news. And it's just a, it's a curse to start trying to figure it out. Because if you start doing introspection, I told people this decades ago, if you start looking inside and spend enough time there trying to figure it out, I can tell you ahead of time what you're going to find. No good thing. Fear, confusion, all kinds of stuff. But trusting the Lord. Remember in Mark, a guy said, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. We're doing a series now on Dominion Theology where people say, well, you need to have faith in your own words. We're doing that in Critical Issues Commentary. Well, wait a second. There's a big difference between what I say and what God said to all. And so that's another confusion. But I want to make a little progress. Look at this one. I, this is new. I didn't have this last week. So I decided to do some more looking into Jeremiah because it's been so many decades since I taught in it. And this is, I think, amazing irony. Now, Jeremiah 2.13, ESV, it says, For my people have committed two evils. Number one, they've forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. Number two, hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. That's Jeremiah 2.13. And then he kept, his, you know, you can read about Jeremiah and others may know more than I do about that, I'm sure, because it's been so many decades since I studied Jeremiah carefully. I've read it a lot. But this is amazing. If you go back down to verse 38.6, Jeremiah 38.6, so he prophesies they, forso- they, they forsook God, made their own sisters. And he kept prophesying. So what did they do? Jeremiah 38, 6. So they took Jeremiah and cast him into the cistern. (laughs) Melchiah. That's what it says. The king's son, which was in the court of the guard, letting Jeremiah down by robes. There was no water in a cistern, but only mud. And he sank in the mud. How many of you know that's bad? You don't want to be down in the system, sinking in the water, sinking in the mud. There's no way out. You're going to die. But he got pulled out of there and continued prophesying. And I did a little research to try to figure out the history of Jeremiah and where he ended up. He, he prophesied the Babylonian captivity. Uh, any Eric, Dana, whoever's taught this or knows something about it can correct me. But he didn't go to Babylon. He ended up taken down to Egypt. Is that correct, Dana? Because he's taught through that uh, recently. And he ended up elsewhere, but everything he prophesied came true. So they didn't treat him right, but he still spoke the truth, and he's a great prophet. Let me see here if I have any notes on that. Jeremiah was rescued from the cistern and brought to King Zedekiah. Well, they never did listen to him. And so then, I was looking further, and this is, uh, do you have that one on your slide, or this new? It's not there? All right. I just found it a couple days ago. 
Someone asked, well, why don't you have all this on the slide? Because I don't even know what it is until Friday or Saturday. So don't blame anybody but me. But we did some radio on this just Saturday because it was so amazing. Look at this. Jeremiah 44, 16, 17. As for the word that you have spoken to us in the name of the Lord, we will not listen to you. Now, why wouldn't they listen to the name of the Lord and the true prophecy? Well, they tell, they tell why they won't. But we will do everything we have vowed, making offerings to the queen of heaven. So why would you listen to the queen of heaven when you have the word of the Lord from a true prophet? Why? It doesn't make sense. Ah, they tell why. And poured out drink offerings to her as we did, both we and our fathers, our kings and our officials, in the cities of Judah, the streets of Jerusalem, for then we had plenty of food and prospered and saw no disaster. Wow. Unbelievable. They tell why they didn't want to hear what God had to say. They had better off with the pagans, better off with the demons, better off with Ashtera. Now, we don't know exactly who the queen of heaven was, but I, I printed this out. Bear with me. The queen of heaven, mentioned elsewhere in the Old Testament, only in Jeremiah 44, 17 and 25, mentioned earlier too, is usually identified as the Assyro-Babylonian deity Ishtar, Canaanite Astarte, goddess of love and fertility, though her exact identity remains unknown. That was from a commentary by Dr. Huey on Jeremiah. Whatever the case, the queen of heaven didn't speak for God. So, what, what do we learn from these things? If you are looking for symptom relief and feel good and a religious experience and better outcome, and that's how you judge what's true, you won't end up believing the gospel. Where did Mike go? There it is. Hi, good morning. I just remember that um, Jeremiah prophesied for 42 years, but one of the reasons that the other prophets, they were prosperous, but because they were dealing, as you said, in the arts, the wicked arts and uh, idolatry and those things, and that's the same problem that people have today. If you're so busy being prospered through the world, you don't have time for God, and that's why they wouldn't listen. That was one reason that they wouldn't listen. What's your name, by the way? Laverne. Nice to meet you. Thanks. Uh, very good reading. Good. Thank you. And also, I was thinking about Ishtar. Isn't that the fable that was uh, her son is mentioned in the Bible? Um, if I can think of his name where what they did was she was married to the Babylonian ruler, um, Nimrod. Wow. wow. Remember? Is that right? And her son, she... Kibbutz. What? Kibbutz. N no, not Kibbutz. Tammuz. That's it. Okay. And that, he's in the Bible because 
she was so evil, and Nimrod, her husband, was a mighty warrior okay. before the Lord. But they created the hoax of the child that would come. She said the child was, um, uh, what do you call it? Uh, she was virgin born, that the, that the child was from God. And in, a, in other words, it was the hoax that when the real virgin birth came, that nobody would believe it. Wow. And it's a myth that went through all of the uh, cultures of the world. Very interesting. Thank you, Laverne, for sharing. Well read. Thank you. Well, let's get the very simple truth here. If you go into the realm of the spirits or into the realm of the subconscious mind, whatever that means, or into the realm of dreams and memories and uh, deterministic causes and why my life is worse than somebody else's, you can get in that forever and you'll never get out unless God pulls you out. Because you're, yeah, maybe you've made cisterns, you forsake, you can forsake the fountain of living water and make your cistern. Do you, do you know what a cistern is? Uh, yeah, on the farm, uh, my grandpa Fred had made a system of uh, rain uh, gutters that drained down into a cistern. And then the cistern had water that could be used for washing clothes. Is that right, Mom? Yep. yep. <laughs> and that was really a pretty cool place, but it was made out of cement. There was no mud in the bottom. Uh, and so the cistern would collect water or whatever, but in this case, they put him into one that was dry. I think it's pretty interesting that that's almost proof that their broken cistern made him get rid of the prophet because they don't want living water. Let's think of this. Where does the living water come from? From God. Didn't Jesus promise that? Out of his innermost being will spring a fountain of living water. Um, think about John 6. Think about that. That's amazing to me. They wanted bread, right? So they knew Jesus could do miracles. He multiplied the bread. Then he walked on water. And what did they want to do? They wanted to take him by force and make him king. Now, in other words, they didn't want the cross. They didn't want all of that. They wanted free bread. And so he, walked, he does all these things. They find him, and he starts teaching the truth. And by the end, they left. So the question is, are we going to go by symptoms, feelings, outcomes, what we like, or are we going to believe what God has spoken clearly, objectively, inherently through his spokespersons, the apostles and prophets, the New Testament, Moses and the prophets in the Old Testament? I believe the more I say this stuff is verified. It's not myth. It's not like the Book of Mormon. It's not like Kundalini Yoga. It's not like the Dalai Lama. It's not like any religion that could be dreamed up. These events happened in real history. And the more that this is verified, the more the Bible's proven true. You know what's interesting about that? If you allow me to just share 
what I've seen in my lifetime of study. Before the Qumran caves, uh, the history of the Septuagint, the various things that were done, part of the reason it took so long is because of um, unrest and political instability in the Middle East, so they couldn't actually get into the places and excavate. The more they've done that, it's when I went to Israel in 83, it wasn't that long before they had found the pilot stone. And the liberals used to say, there was no pilot. In other words, they believed if the Bible said something was true, but nobody else said the same thing, then it never happened. Then they found a pilot stone. Oh, there was a pilot. Now, I don't know if you read lately, they found a coin that had pilot on it. Oh, there was a pilot. Oh, there was a suffering servant in Isaiah 53. It's in the Dead Sea Scrolls. Oh, yeah, this really did happen. This really did happen. So then what do they do? They go into mysticism. Everything's evolving to God. Emergent church, postmodern, nothing is true, nothing is real. Just go into some mystical nirvana and hope in that. But why? 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 Why do the liberals say there's no resurrection, none of these things happen, there's no, there's no miracles, uniformity of cause and effect in a closed system? Why do they say all that? And then when that's proven false, the orthodoxy will just take a blind leap of faith. And then Eastern religion. Everything's evolving into godhood. There's no future judgment. Why? Rebellion. And the hue now says, go ahead, Eric. We haven't heard from you for a while. Well, people want to make a God, create a God of their own making. That's what all of these others are. And, and you know, uh, I haven't done any evangelism for not much for a couple of years, but when we used to go out more, I, I can tell you that out of all the people we spoke to, most often, you can confront people with the truth, and you can do it nicely, and you can do all of that, but people do not want to believe that they're depraved sinners, and they cannot understand why God would send his son to die for our sins, and you can tell them about the Mosaic Covenant and how this is the new covenant and all of that, but they still will not believe. There's a hardening for some people, but we don't know who's hardened, so we go to everyone. You know, we don't know who's elected for salvation, but, but in answer to your question, and I know it was a rhetorical question, <laughs> but they, they would rather make a God of their own making, create a God of their own, you know, much Why easier. Why do you still have the mic? I, I want to talk to you about something. That's exactly right. Now, next, on the 18th, I'm preaching, and I've got the sermon basically ready, and it's about that the Jews demand signs the Gentiles seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified to the Jews a scandal, scandalon, trigger trap that they're scandalized by, and to the Greeks, which is synonymous with ethnos, mm -hmm. it's Hellenine mm -hmm. there, to the Greeks, it's, if we just transliterate, moronic. Exactly. Foolishness. Foolishness. Okay. So we preach Christ. So if nobody wants to hear what we have to preach, why preach it? I'll tell you what. Uh, uh, because it's true, for one thing. <laughs> there you go. But, but I've got to tell you a personal note. Uh, when I came to faith, 
I was one of these guys like in Mark. Lord, I believe, please help my unbelief. And so it took years for me to resolve this notion that I was a depraved sinner. I thought I was a pretty good guy by the world standards, you know. But it was in Seattle. I was living there. I had been transferred there, and I I read that section of 1 Corinthians, and a light bulb went on, you know, just like that. I don't necessarily understand it all, but I didn't know Jeremiah, you know, that the heart is deceitful above all else, but I realized that from from that text. So uh, I'm looking forward to uh, when you preach on that. Well, I'll be a week from Sunday, but the thing that's interesting is that God commands preachers to preach what nobody wants to hear. That's what's there, and I'll give you a preview. And I wonder how you justify the seeker movement. Literally, if you give people what they're seeking, you don't even need the Bibles. You don't need churches or hymnals or anything. Because what they're seeking is everywhere. So if the church turns into the seeker, give people what they want to hear, by definition, they have to reject K. Russo and Juan Galizzo preaching, evangelizing, and what the, the Greek in the New Testament says, because they don't want it. And so there's so much pressure. You have to have a big church. You have to have an organization. You have to be growing. You have to have money, all these things. Otherwise, you failed. But if you preach Christ, that's what he commanded us to do. And if we can do that by God's grace, we're not looking for accolades now. I would rather see one Ed Levine with the joy of the Lord on his face the last time I saw him than he dies. But his, the joy was there because he trusted Christ. Amen. And nobody's going to get big and popular by helping anybody who just wants to hear the truth. And I'll tell you what, those broken cisterns, we go back to that. Fountain of living waters or broken cisterns? How do you know the difference? Well, if you could see it religiously, you'd think, well... Babylon, uh, you know, we're going to make an alliance with Syrians or whoever all they made alliances with. They can help us. It's Jeremiah. He never has anything good to say. Uh, You have to believe the promises of God. That's it. Does that make sense? And so I'll talk about this more next week, but the fact is it isn't based on observed outcome of what's popular. Because according to 1 Corinthians 1, 20, 21, 22, 23, 24, the true gospel won't be popular. But it's what we're commanded to preach. And that's just it. Does that make sense? Well, I think it's a good... Let me see where we're at. Well, look at that. We never got to still small voice. Ah, so many things to talk about but here if you want to uh, do a little research on this I was, I was looking this up if you want to read Jeremiah 
43, 42, 43, 44, and all of that to get the context of it. I think it's a fantastic story that's true about what God did. And if, if everything, have Dana, uh, get the mic to Dana, because he's taught Jeremiah. Um, I don't know if anybody would sign up for Jeremiah's job. <laughs> How would you like to be in a buddy's cistern and no way out with no water? Yes, go ahead. This is just an interesting footnote. There's no way we can know this for certain, of course. But it is possible that Jesus, the prison that Jesus was held in the night before his crucifixion, that it was located in that same area where, where Jeremiah was thrown into the cistern. Really? Interesting. So, the cistern. So let's ask ourselves this question. What do I want? Feelings, outcome. We had plenty of food. Let's just go serve the queen of heaven. Got a dumb question is this. You're telling us to believe that all these bad things are going to happen. We're going to go off to Babylon. We got the queen of heaven. Or you have Yahweh, which is going to be the object of our faith. The queen of heaven will let you down because... Uh, it's either just demons, false doctrines, or mythology, whatever. Uh, I heard one person say, people have these gods with uh, shaky ontological status. That's a fancy way of saying, maybe they don't even exist. <laughs> and if they do, they're probably demons. Okay, we need to close in prayer. Thank you, Lord, for the opportunity to learn what you've said and uh, help us to be sober-minded about what we can know, thankful about what you have revealed, and bold in what the truth is. And may our hope be centered in what you've done for us, not what we think we can do for ourselves. And we want to honor uh, our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for sins, was raised, and has promised to come again. And in his holy name we pray. Amen. God bless you. We'll see you upstairs in a bit.